Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Tuesday, September 29th. We begin with a look at the national response to COVID-19 as we move closer to the second wave. We catch up with Mercedes Stevenson Global's Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block to hear details of her recent conversation with Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland on the government's plan to battle the recent rise in coronavirus cases. With the Canada Emergency Response Benefit transitioning to EI, we look at the confusion surrounding the change by those who've been dependent on the program. We get details on the new setup by a professor of business from Carleton University. Then we head to Quebec, where a recent increase in COVID-19 infections has pushed the city of Montreal and other regions into red alert. We get the details of new restrictions now in place from Montreal journalist Braden Jagger-Haynes. And finally, we speak with the travel lady, Leslie Cater, with a look at the future of cruise ship vacations. Leslie tells us about a new partnership among cruise companies that aims to get the ships back to sea and bring back the travelers. Well, as the number of COVID cases in Canada and around the world continues to climb, Mercedes Stevenson, Global's Ottawa Bureau Chief, spoke to Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland over the weekend on the West Block. Mercedes joins us now. Hi, Mercedes. How are you? Happy Tuesday to you. Hey, happy Tuesday, guys. Great to talk to you. And thanks for joining us. You know, since you spoke to Christian Freeland, we've hit that one million deaths around the world mark, a terrible number to reach. But your first question to her was, do you think Canadians at this point are prepared for a second wave and what did she say about that you know she indicated what we've been hearing from the government which is that they're doing everything possible to try to deal with this it is their number one concern um but it's a, it's a challenging thing to be ready for um there's frustration i think especially where i am in ontario because the testing is really running into problems and folks are saying uh, that they don't see a big difference between federal and provincial governments at this point in, in part because they've been working in lockstep but they're saying why weren't we prepared for this why weren't we ready we knew that the fall was coming and now we're hearing the labs are overwhelmed and they're starting to wind down testing capacity in eastern Ontario as the numbers are surging. Mm. Um, And I think that this is something the federal government is struggling with because they have to work with the provinces. Testing is a provincial jurisdiction. They have gotten involved in all kinds of provincial jurisdictions, but guess what? Uh, The opposite side of that is that when things start to go sideways, you're also going to get blamed for what's happening in those provincial uh, jurisdictions. So I think the federal government right now is really in the midst of trying to wrap their head around what do they do with this second wave of the pandemic? I I can tell you, Sue and Andrew, you're going to see more of the Prime Minister. We're already hearing that. I don't know that it's going to be the daily briefings coming back, but you are going to start seeing a lot more of him. Uh, Those briefings with Dr. Tam coming back, less of her putting out the statement, more of her appearing. And in fact, we are expecting to hear from them today. We think it might have something to do with testing capacity. Uh, So we're keeping an eye on that for you right now. Interesting. The other other thing that you asked uh, Deputy Prime Minister uh, Freeland, who's also the Finance Minister, Mm -hmm. is uh, within a second wave, could we see lockdowns again yeah i you know, i think that this is this is what i hear the most about just on a personal level from people i feel it too i mean that lockdown was really really hard yeah. it was really hard yeah. on everyone we were isolated um it was hard on the elderly who you know many of whom spent their final days without their family members uh, able to hold somebody's hand and it had a extremely detrimental effect on our economy and as the numbers are going up there's a lot of businesses too especially mm-hmm. small businesses looking around and saying if we, if we cannot 
survive a second lockdown. It seems like what they're looking at at this point is while they're saying publicly nothing's off the table, and I do think that's true, um, they're realizing a lot of the transmissions, they're not happening in grocery stores, they're not happening in bars and restaurants, they're happening at social gatherings. That's where this is going on. Um, That's also much harder to control than businesses, which you can simply shut down. So I, I don't know that we would see another phase like that. She wouldn't really directly answer that question. I don't think they want to say no because they're worried that people who have COVID fatigue then have carte blanche. Right. But on the other hand, I think they've realized uh, that kind of a really wide-ranging lockdown did not work so well last time. Let's switch gears a little bit. You also spoke with uh, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh and talked a little bit about the deal that he struck with the Liberals in order to prop up that throne speech. Uh, what did he have to say about that? So he is thrilled with his deal. <laughs> <laughs> Although the, one of the questions we asked him is, do you think that people are going to remember the NDP got them this deal, or are they going to give the credit to the Liberal government? Uh, so we'll have to wait and see, but this, of course, is the, the sick days, um, which Canadians will now get. Uh, you don't have to have COVID to qualify for them. He also had argued for and successfully, quite easily actually, gotten the Liberals to give um, extra money for those who were transitioning off of the CERB onto EI, because it was about a $400, $500 difference there. That bill, by the way, is actually being debated right now in Parliament, but the Liberals are shutting down debate on it to force it through at top speed, saying, you know, the CERB has ended, uh, we just got to get this through. Of course, the flip side of that is, had they not prorogued Parliament, this would have likely been through by now. Uh, then again, the NDP may not have had the same bargaining power there. So, so that's really uh, the NDP taking credit, and the rumors we're starting to hear now, and what they've been signaling, and what Mr. Singh quite publicly signaled in that interview, is that they're looking to pressure the Liberals to impose a wealth tax next uh, on on super uh, some corporations or individuals who are super wealthy. Mr. Singh uh, alleges some of these individuals or corporations have benefited from the pandemic financially. So we'll see if the Liberals are willing to go there since they've said that tax hikes are off the table. Okay, well, let's uh, switch gears and talk about, you know, where we are in 2020. Everything looks different, and that includes Parliament. (laughs) Uh, Members of Parliament completed their first ever remote vote in the House of Commons. But right off the bat, a system failure by Microsoft delayed the vote for about 40 minutes, and it took about two hours to arrive at the result. Are they going to keep with the same system? What are you hearing? Because, you know, work has to happen. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of those days where I'm like, it's 2020. Did yes. we ever think this would happen? <laughs> uh-huh. Of course not. Uh, you know, I think they are going to stick with it. Um, it. Obviously not really off to a great start, <laughs> but... This is a situation where particularly where you've had the block leader um, who just came back yesterday to Parliament Hill, Conservative leader Andrew, uh, pardon me, Aaron O'Toole coming back uh, today, we're hearing. Uh, both had COVID do- diagnosis. Both were not able to be there for the speech for the throne. And uh, well, in particular, the Conservatives have argued against this kind of virtual voting, virtual Parliament, because there's certain things in the standing orders of Parliament where you actually have to be present in person in order to exert those powers of Parliament. That includes things like being able to compel doc or in this case to vote, that's now being changed. Uh, So their argument's a little weakened for having to come in in person, given that those powers that they needed in person are now happening. I know there's still concerns on the Conservative side that having Parliament not sit normally uh, reduces the accountability effectiveness and just the way that narratives unfold for the government. On the flip side, now that you've had two leaders who weren't able to attend and certainly are going to want to be able to vote, um, and I've 
talked to Conservative MPs and staffers who said, look, I understand the concerns about lack of accountability, but I have a family member or a staff member who is immunocompromised, and they're really quite uncomfortable with these large sort of meetings or the in-person caucus that they've been looking at. Um, So there's certainly been pressure to move to this. I don't think they're going to back off at any time soon. What'll be interesting is to see if this sticks after COVID or if it goes away after that. Very interesting. Lots to follow this week and maybe we'll hear from the PM. Who knows? Thanks for joining us, Mercedes. Thank you. That's Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of the West Block. It is 617, a helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Come visit the largest concrete built condos in the city. Heading through the southeast, 52nd Street construction continues between 23rd Avenue and Aaron Woods Drive with a left lane closure impacting both directions. If you are leaving Mackenzie Town or New Brighton, though, those northbound lanes of 52nd Street are a great option up towards Glenmore. Same with Deerfoot Trail, northbound lanes sitting delay-free from Stony Trail all the way up towards 17th Avenue. At Glenmore Trail, though, we do have ongoing construction in a couple of spots. There are those speed restrictions in place at 68th Street. And then over in the southwest end, that big ring road project at Sarcy Trail and Highway 8 resulting in lane realignments and speed restrictions. Join this year's Reimagine Canadian Cancer Society CIBC Run for the Cure and never stop running. Sign up, create your virtual runner and runner walk your way October 4th. For the 770 CHQR Traffic Helicopter, I'm Freddie Howard. 709 on the morning news. Ottawa launched the CERB, the Canadian Emergency Response Benefit, in March to deal with the pandemic. But the government's now phasing out that program in favor of a beefed-up EI program. Here to break it all down for us is Ian Lee, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Good morning to you, Ian. Uh, Good morning, uh, Andrew. We had the date on the calendar, September 27th, which happened to be Sunday, CERB coming to an end. We'll talk about the replacement in a second, but I want to delve into, first and foremost, if you were on that program, what did you have to do to continue to get benefits? What was the process? Uh, It was very minimalist, which is, I think, why they're bringing it to an end. The usual, I call it checks and balances of the unemployment insurance program, um, which has existed since 1940 Mm -hmm. when Mackenzie King introduced it. Now it's been tweaked and changed and amended many times through the years, but it is strongly supported by Canadians, has been for a very long time. The CERB when they introduced it back in March, and I understand why they did it, but it fundamentally contradicted two of the principles of the unemployment um, uh, regime that we have, the unemployment insurance regime, which is that you have to be looking for a job. Uh, even if there's no jobs, you have to be looking for a job. And secondly, you don't get 100% of your income on EI. You get a subset, a percentage of your income that's less than 100. CERB um, uh, ended up paying uh, more than the 55 or 60 percent on unemployment insurance. In fact, in the fiscal snapshot, they ended up, and this is from the government's uh, tabling of data in Parliament, they ended up paying 150 percent of the total wage losses caused by COVID. So it paid not 55 percent, it didn't pay 100 percent, it paid 150 percent, mm. because some people were getting more on the CERB than they were getting, many people were getting more on the CERB than they were getting when they were working. So now as it rolls over and it's, you know, they transition people into this sort of newer version of the EI program then, how, does, how is that going to shape up for people? Will it, will it bring them back to, you know, a proper amount of money as opposed to overpaying in a way? 
Um, well, just before I answer that, let me just put a big picture frame on this, okay? okay. Because uh, this isn't being, I don't think, dealt well in Canada. We're still talking as if, you know, we've got millions and millions and millions of people out of work. And I'm using, I've got the StatScan screen right in front of me as I'm talking to you. The unemployment rate in August um, is down to 10.2%. Now, before pre-COVID, it was at 5 so we, there's no question there's more people at work today uh, po- uh, during COVID than before, but it's not uh, at 15 or 20 or 25 percent. So we have, uh, we have to focus on those people, for sure. And what they've done, they, the government, um, has announced that the people on CERB would be rolled over or moved over or transitioned over to the unemployment insurance system, which is prudent because that's why we created it mm-hmm. 50 or 70 or 80 years ago. And they have a, a, a bureaucracy, and I say that in the good sense of the word, of people trained and skilled to administer these claims. And there's an appeal process if you're denied and you don't think you should have been denied. So there's an entire infrastructure, if I can call it that. And, um, and it's very experienced, and it's been there a long time, and it works. What they've done, though, is they've uh, significantly expanded the parameters of EI. One of the big complaints, uh, and way before COVID, I mean, going back, oh my goodness, uh, studies by academics and think tanks and so forth going back 15, 20 years, was that it was very restrictive. Only about a little over half of the population actually qualified for EI if they lost their job. It didn't apply to gig workers. It didn't apply to workers who made less, worked less than 120 hours previously. It didn't apply to self-employed. So they're expanding the eligibility of EI, yet details yet to be determined because the bill hasn't been introduced to my knowledge in Parliament, and I'm watching for this, uh, but it's going to significantly expand the eligibility. The second thing it did was, although they were initially saying minimum payment on EI, the new revised EI, was going to be $400, um, they've increased it to 500 which was the CERB payment. So that's a significant departure because the old, the existing previous EI system said you got 55% of whatever it is you are working uh, when you are working. If you are making a thousand a month, 55% of a thousand is 550. Well, now they've gone to 500 a week, which is 2,000 a month, regardless of what you are working. So that principle seems to have been set aside. Now I don't know if it's going to be permanently set aside or just temporary for the duration of the COVID crisis, yet to be determined. But my point is, very quickly, I don't want to take up all the time, but I think they're going to be, most CERB recipients don't have to worry. I think they're going to be looked after. In fact, the figures from the government are 80% are going to be rolled over immediately with just, you know, carte blanche with no no problems. Okay. So then they'll deal with the exceptions. And, and I think most people on CERB don't have to worry. Well, I think that was the number one question, the confusion surrounding it. Where do I sign up? Am I still eligible? And I think that most Canadians, and certainly in this room, we, something we've discussed, can agree that people who, who need that money need that money. But I'm wondering, yeah. are there checks and balances with this new-look EI and this transition to prevent yeah. those? Because that was the number one concern about CERB. Some people who didn't need to be on CERB getting their 2000 a month. Are, are there different checks and balances to stop that from happening with this transition? Andrew, you've asked, I think, the most important question, which is why I was a critic of CERB. And I don't mean giving help to people that need help. Of course there should be. That, that Nobody, I don't think anybody, denies that. My criticism of the CERB when it was set up was that there were basically no checks and balances. Are you a Canadian? Do you have a pulse? Can you sign the application <laughs> online and you get the check? I mean, literally, it was that loose, loosey-goosey. 
And, and for those who don't like even this language, may I remind everybody that the whole EI system, which we've supported, huge public support by Canadians for EI, has had checks and balances built into the system from the get-go. And they have professional people working there. My, my brother's spouse worked there for many years in one of the EI offices, evaluating, adjudicating claims. And one of the things was you had to be looking for a job, even if you weren't, um, even if there were no jobs in a recession, just to keep you in, in the labor market, so to speak. And, and so there are checks and balances in the EI program. There, there were none really in the CERB program. So this is a good thing that they're moving CERB into the system that we've created for 70 or 80 years that is really good at addressing these very questions, whereas the CERB wasn't. It was a sort of a program without any administrators. So it looks like we will hopefully get rid of some of those people who might be uh, scamming the system slightly. And let's face it, I mean, the government put this in really quickly, didn't they? Yes. Ian, yes. you know, trying to get that money to people. And, and it's taken a little time, but now hopefully we can weed out the ones who are illegitimately taking the money. I believe so, too, not because I'm harsh, but because that's squandering scarce resources on people that don't sure. need it, which should be going to people that do need it. So yeah. everybody should be supporting uh, due diligence checks and balances to make sure that we're not squandering or wasting scarce public resources that should be going to people that need help. Wow. And uh, again, a deep topic, and uh, we're going to see how things go moving ahead. But Nice to have a vote of confidence that this uh, seems to be the right direction. We appreciate your time this morning. Thanks very much, Andrew. Thank you. That is Ian Lee, Associate Professor at the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. It's 717. Time for helicopter traffic for West District by Truman. Life happens at hellowestdistrict.com. 719 now, and the rising levels of COVID-19 infections have pushed Montreal and other regions in Quebec to the highest level of alert. Officials say the situation is now critical and uh, a partial lockdown is ahead. Journalist Braden Jagger-Haynes is live from Montreal with more. Morning, Braden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us. Can you tell us what the situation is in Quebec right now? What does that look like, this red alert? Well, it's sort of a deja vu for many of the Quebecers as the province, three regions specifically, will be put into the highest level of alert, and that being the Greater Montreal Region, Quebec City, and the Chaudet Appalachian. That is going to be putting into effect as of midnight on Wednesday, and that means bars, restaurants, museums, casinos, they will all be closed to the public. But unlike the spring lockdown that we saw, businesses and storefronts such as salons and, and barbershops, even gyms and schools, they will be unaffected and will remain open. And that is something that is shocking a lot of people. Right, and who's responsible for the resurgence or what we call the second wave? Is this a, a case of larger gatherings or did the premier drop the ball, as uh, some may be indicating? It's funny, he was asked that directly and point blank by a journalist here in Montreal saying, did you drop the ball? And he said, it's not theoretically the province's fault it was sort of bound to happen with things being sort of relaxed in terms of restrictions beforehand. Once the summer hit, people sort of went back to normal, and those restrictions, well, they were sort of in the back of people's minds. But now they have come back with a vengeance in a sense of the numbers that we have been seeing in this province. They have jumped in just a two-week span to double what they were. On Sunday, we recorded a number of almost 900 cases, and that's something we saw only in May. And the province has always been the most affected in Canada, and it's staying, and it's still at the top of that title, sadly. Wow, Braden. So what's the reaction from restaurant owners now, and is the, is the government offering them something in return? 
Yeah, out of all the groups, they are the ones that are mostly affected, and they say they're definitely not getting a fair shake when it comes to this latest restriction. And they say this is something that they put a lot of money and time to make their business safe with all those safety measures in terms of plexiglass and PPE. And they say they can't, they can't continue to operate with just delivery and takeout like they did in the first shutdown. And that's why they're worried. And the province says, well, they will, uh, they highly understand this problem. They say that this is not easy situation, not something they wanted to do, but community spread is one of the major factors. And they account it to sometimes being in restaurants with alcohol being involved and that being an issue, people getting close, not following that two meter distance. So that is something that the province says was needed to be done to shut down that sort of contagion. And so, they are offering some money, but details on that, we still do not know what will happen. And they are highly anticipated, and we hope to hear it in the coming days. Quickly, uh, Braden, after the 28-day period, is it a hard, fast rule that things will open up again, or could it be extended past 28 days? Yeah, that's something that is still unknown. And the Premier said it's not a magical date. Not everything is going to come back to normal. He expects to see a gradual reopening like we saw in the spring, but that's going to be something that depends on the public and how they react to these restrictions and if the numbers go down and the capacity in hospitals go down. And that is all dependent on the public here, and that is something the Premier said. There's no promises to that. Thanks for this Red Alert update, Braden. Appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for having me. That's journalist Braden Jagger-Hines in Montreal. Seven forty-nine, and it's being called the Healthy Sailing Panel, made up of some of the world's largest cruise line companies with one goal, uniform safety guidelines to get ships back to sea and to get travelers traveling again. She is the greatest, biggest lover of travel in the world, I think. She joins us this morning, the travel lady, Leslie Cater. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Sue. Very true indeed. I think you you probably, even more than most, are missing the whole traveling thing. Do, is this, do you think this will be enough to get people people back on cruise ships? Well, it's pretty extensive. I've read the report in detail and it's lengthy, but they've really covered some amazing points. And um, if you have a look at the summary that I sent you, they've covered embarkation, um, even at the time of, of booking, where you uh, will speak to people and let them know the protocols on board, for example, masks required, um, a negative uh, COVID test required. But they've taken it so much further in that um, protocols with bringing their crew on board. So it's a very extensive uh, report and they've made this available to all cruise lines. Leslie, you've, you've mentioned that it's very comprehensive, but also it's a coming together of, uh, you know, some major companies that generally are competitors, aren't they? Well, that's indeed true. And, uh, you know, the cruise industry is being hit as a whole. So uh, Royal Caribbean, who owns uh, six different cruise lines, and Norwegian Cruise Line also have five or six, they got together and they uh, they got experts in from World Health Organization, CDC, these people all had experience in their time working with these organizations and they took it step by step as to what actually happens when you get on a cruise and how could this disease be spread and how can they stop it? 
It's fascinating because cruising is such a multi, I would assume, billion dollar business, right? So, and, oh, it, you know, sure. that it trickles down to the countries they visit, to the crew, the entertainment that are hired. So, and all of us, we love to travel. So this is important that I think everybody comes together and really makes sure that they can do it the best way possible, isn't it? Well, that's indeed true. In fact, last year, 2019, 30 million people went on a cruise. <sighs> So if you consider those numbers and the debacle that happened on the Diamond Princess, which they acknowledge in this report, and they say that that should never have happened. But way back then, with the first outbreak on a cruise ship, they it, this was new. They didn't know how to handle it. And that was the purpose of getting this committee together so that that won't happen again. Well, yes, as a, somebody who loves to travel, applauding every move to you know make people safe and to get things as back to normal mm-hmm. as possible as soon as possible. So thank you very much for your information, Leslie. No problem. Thanks, guys. That is Leslie Cater, known as The Travel Lady. Full details online at thetravellady.ca.